Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Ed, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm delighted to be here. Now that you've seen I have two suits, I'll take the coat off. Thank you very much. Actually, I was thinking dinner was right after this, and I was in a rush, so I put on the wrong belt, too, to make me feel real uncomfortable. Uh, but I'm delighted to be here. Uh, uh, let's, let's just take a minute and understand what the whole idea of forgiveness is about. I don't know about you, but I had it goofed up for a long time. I thought it had to do something with them. And forgiveness has everything to do to me. You think we know that because we're so self-obsessed, but... Because, you see, uh, resentment gives me a sense of power. If I can hate you, at least I can do something. And it's a sickness that really entered every area of my life. Before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not pleased to tell you for a long time afterwards. Why? Because I never did a thing about it. Well, I'm not drinking. Isn't that good enough? Nope. Not if you want to be happy, joyous, and free. You know, while while back it seemed to me that I kind of look at the 12 steps as we're all temples or houses, if you will. And we're all temples. And the first step is you got to admit there's trouble in the temple. You know? Second step is uh, trouble in the temple and I can't fix it. <laughs> you know? And when I fix it, it gets crazy in the temple. Third step is I need the outside contractor. You know? <laughs> You call in the outside contractor, and he comes in and said, or it comes in, whatever your outside contractor is, and says, good news, I can help you, but you got to clean this mess up for me to work. You know, four-step. You clean the mess up. You bring in the truck, and you take it out. And you take inventory of all the stuff going out because you don't want it to come back in. Six and seven is when you go around the house and you see uh, uh, the cracks in the walls that you've been ignoring for years. And you patch them and you paint them. Six and seven. Eight and nine is the same thing. That's when we repaint the walls. When we go to those rooms and those messes we've been ignoring for years and we clean them all up. Step ten is real simple. It's where we clean our temple every single day. Step eleven is understanding that God already lived in the temple. But what we've got now is a room for him to live in all the time. And step 12 is simply going around and ask people to come live in our temple. That's the way I understand Alcoholics Anonymous today. It's not about an intellectual exercise that will help me understand my demons. (laughs) It's about a house cleaning that begins here. And if it doesn't begin here, it better start here sooner or later. Or it's never going to be done. And if it's never done, in my experience, and what I've watched people do, is is we lose a got lot of good people because they don't know how to do one thing, and that's forgive. You know, when you talk about forgiveness, it's such a wide, wide uh, topic. One of the things that I, I, I remember the most that people talk about, and it's real hip to talk about today, is child molestation. I was molested when I was seven by a woman 26 years old next door, and I still think about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, am I bad for that? If you hear everybody else, I'm bad for that. Why am I bad for that? All I know is somebody in my life was kind to me. Now, was it the right thing to do? Of course not. But you see, I have a choice how to feel about that. I was talking in Texas not too long ago, and uh, Longview, Texas, and it was a good time down there. We had a good time, and I give my talk like I gave last night, and a woman come up to me and said, I want to talk to you. I thought, uh-oh, here we go. And she said, uh, I've hated my father for 56 years, and he's been dead for 20. And I said, how's that working for you? <laughs> She said, I'm very angry. That's how I am. I said, yeah, I can see that. I said, why did you hate him? He said, he molested me when I was a child. And I said, and he's been dead for 20 years. And she said, yeah. And I said, so you've kept the molestation alive. He's gone. And she said, well, I never thought about it like that. And I said, why not? He's not here to perpetuate that nastiness and that hate and that ill feeling you have. And then she asked me one of the best questions I've ever been asked. And God give me an answer like that. She looked at me and said, well, let me ask you this. What if I die and go to heaven and he's there? <laughs> what a great question. What a great question. And like that, God said to tell her, wouldn't that be a wonderful place to find him? Because if he's in heaven, he understands the harm he's done. And he's asked for forgiveness. What better place to meet him? You know, those are the ways we got to look at things to heal. Angry and resentment's easy. Forgiveness is tough. Why? Because I'm a collector of ones. If there's anything negative going around, I talked about it last night, the 299 to 1. If there's anything negative going around, I'll collect it and I'll hang on to it. There were so many things I resented from childhood. God. Ooh, I resented God. I can remember my household would turn on the light in the middle of the night and a million cockroaches would run everywhere, and I'm just trying to get a drink of water. And I used to go to church, and there used to be a common theme I heard, I picked up in church, and that was, God is responsible for everything. <laughs> Ever hear that one? Every hair that... <laughs> Wayne, you don't like us, bud. <laughs> Every bird that, you know, and that's all good stuff, unless you're a collector of ones. Because when I turn on that light, and all those roaches run everywhere, and on Friday night when Dad would drink up the check and there wouldn't be any food for the family for the week, or the police had come, or my brother would be taken away again, I started thinking, God must not like me much. Because why would he do that what did I do? Why am I so bad? So you start doing something that comes very natural when you have that. You start hating God. Start hating God. And you know, in forgiveness, that's one of the first things I had to give. Not God, but my perception of God. You see, that's what was warped. The God I know and believe in today has nothing to do with what I heard then. But it has everything to do with what makes me complete today. And I learned that here, but I first had to acknowledge that maybe I'm wrong about God. Maybe I'm wrong about God. Hated my dad. You ever had that feeling? 
dad's a drunk, you wish he'd be dead, and then you cry yourself to sleep because you know you're not supposed to wish that? Came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you taught me I didn't hate my dad, I hated the disease. There's a big difference. And I had to forgive that. See, I like staying mad, because if I could stay mad, then I could blame everything on you. I loved being a flake in AA for a long time. I was a good flake. I really was. I, you know, and you know what's nice about being a flake? Nobody will ask you to do anything. They know you ain't going to do it, so they won't ask you. Kind of good deal. Problem is, you never get asked to do anything. It was kind of funny that the gal, I loved her, she come up here, she was so nervous reading the 12 Traditions. And we were talking a little bit, and I said, are you nervous? She said, yeah. And I said, you remember who read the 12 Traditions uh, last meeting? She said, oh, yeah. I said, how about last night? She said, no. I said, that's just how important this is going to be in about an hour. <laughs> you know? But why am I talk to? I mean, you know, we get into, oh, it means so much. Ah, it really doesn't. <laughs> no, it really doesn't, because there's six seconds, and we're going to be thinking about us again, you know? <laughs> And have you ever noticed that when they make a mistake, especially reading chapter 5, there's a truism in it. There's just a little truism. It's like, maybe they should rewrite that bad boy that way, you know. (laughs) But I just love that. Uh, But I had to forgive God. How I forgave God, I had to forgive my perception of God. And why I make that distinction is I had to understand that what I was mad at is what I believed. It wasn't God. Two different things. I believed that God was a punishing God that made people suffer, and if you weren't on his favorite list, you were going to burn in hell. And I had no chance of getting there, I'll tell you. And it was quite clear. And uh, uh, I had to redo that. I had to rewrite that because simply because if I'm going to live with peace and serenity inside of me, that's where it's got to change. Let's talk about exes. Ex-spouses, ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends. Never any resentment there. (laughs) They own you. They own you. They own your heart. They own your mind. They own your private moments. They're your God. That's why forgiveness is important. Until you forgive them, they'll own you. The minute you see a picture of them, they'll own you. Minute you think of them, they'll own you. And that's not what we're supposed to be about today. Step three says we're, you know, freedom from the bondage of self. And, and part of freedom from the bondage of myself is learning to forgive that stuff, not justify it so I can keep going on it. You know, when my father was murdered, I know one thing real clearly that I could have took those guys out and no court would have convicted. I had that knowledge. And I'll tell you, I don't share this much, but I want to tell you because uh, it was about like a year and a half uh, of murder trials. And I talked about it last night, and I said I'd behave myself, and I did. But I was working in the courts then. And I remember it took about a year and a half for the trials to be completed. And uh, uh, I was down at the county courthouse, county jail, for something. I don't remember what. Just happened to be there. And they're bringing these guys down for sentencing. And they're bad rapping me. They remember me from court. And they're saying, we got your old man. 
And I'm thinking, Punk, I'll take you out. And I'm just getting, and they're just bad-mouthing me and bad-mouthing me. And the sheriff, the deputy sheriff in front of me, said, hold it down in there. You know, I had to do Wayne. <laughs> and they didn't hold it down. Of course, what do they got to lose? They're going away for life. And they kept mouthing off. And that deputy sheriff pulled his gun out, laid it right in front of me to go in and shut him up. Now, for a year, I had thought, how can I even score? How can I get to him? And here I was given the opportunity. And the strangest thing happened. I looked at those kids. Oldest one was 18. And I remember the first time I went to jail. Oh, I had a tough mouth. I was tough. Just hope nobody see me crying myself to sleep that night because I'm terrified. And I thought they're going to spend the rest of their lives doing that. And I was amazed because I walked away praying. You couldn't have convinced me of that because you see they owned me. They owned my heart and they owned my mind and I wanted to take them out. And I was given the opportunity and like I said, no court would have convicted me. And I walked away praying. Now, did that free them? No. Freed me. I think that's one of the big reasons that I eventually even forgot the names of the guys who killed my father. Now, that's a good resentment. You don't want to let go of that kind of stuff. Remember them. Think about them from time to time. Get worked up. You know, every once in a while, an appeal will come through, and you can get really mad again. Self-righteous. And it took a conscious effort to step away from being the son of a murder victim. So I didn't get the juice. When you'd walk into your room, oh, that's it. You know, his father was murdered. I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't know there was a payoff. And when I saw it, it made me sick to my stomach. And I quit it. Because I'm not a victim anymore. And I'm certainly not a volunteer. I'm a free man by the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I want to continue to be that, i got to forgive whatever comes up. Exes. Told you the experience I have with my... I pray for my ex-wife every day, and I'm not being smart about that. I'm not being sarcastic about that. With all that hate she has for me, that's got to be painful. That's got to be painful. And I hope someday she finds some peace with it. I hope someday my kids can experience the peace rather than the hate. Because it takes its toll when we hate our exes. It reflects in our children in their lives. Some of us get that. Some of us don't. But I can't resent her. Because if I resent her, all it does is take away from my quality and my living with you. Anytime I'm resenting anything in my past, it takes me away from the quality of living with you. It taints everything. And, 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 you know, in a relationship, well, I can't trust men. Well, I can't trust women. Can't trust you. That's the problem. <laughs> you know, you get that worked out, you might have a shot elsewhere, you know. But it's here where we got to do the work. Here's where we got to do the work. Forgiveness. Why not? Because I said it before. It's easier to stay angry. It's comfortable. It's convenient. Most of all, it's familiar. 
I don't know about you, but I used to be a 30 to 1 alcoholic. What I mean by that is I could have 30 good days and one bad one would come along and I'd throw out all 30. You know, I'd be feeling great, feeling great, feeling great, bad day. Oh, shit. Everything's bad. <laughs> Program don't work. It's all a bunch of crap. I shouldn't get <laughs> I'd throw away the 30 good days for the one bad one. I had a lady working for me uh, when I was out in L.A., and uh, she came in one day and said, Man, am I having a bad day? I said, That's okay. Just don't make it a horrible day. And she looked at me. She said, what do you mean by that? I said, I don't know about you, but if I get up, I'm having a bad day. I have a worse day because I know I'm having a bad day. When I start thinking about it, I don't like it bad days, and I'm sick of bad days. Now I'm having a horrible day. And before long, it'll be an outrageous day, and anybody gets in my way, they're in big trouble. Now imagine if I would have got up and said, well, it's one of them off days. See you later. And just let it be. You know what she said? Feel better already. <laughs> Turmoil is familiar. Turmoil is comfortable. Turmoil gives me a sense of power when I am powerless or scared. One and the same. And I had to learn to not use that tool anymore. That's tough. That's tough. I used to use my physical size and my strength for intimidation. I can't do that anymore. Day at a time. Uh, I can't, uh, I can't use my, my hate is power for a sense of being. I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want that to be the reason I'm living or dying anymore. Why do we forgive to heal? Now, a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I can forgive, but I can't forget. <laughs> yeah, right. Might as well send that one home. Are <laughs> well, you really, you know. All that means is, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> forgive and can't forget, just, just forget about forgiving. Because that isn't what it's about. You know, uh, when I think about uh, the murder scene of my father, there, there's always that one point, and it's happened for 33, well, not 33, 32 years, uh, that when I remember that murder scene and that pool of blood and my father's glasses in it, it still brings me to tears. But there was no resentment and malice. It was just one of the saddest things I ever saw. And I don't know if that'll ever change, but I can change the malice. I can change the malice. I have that power. You want to be forgiving? Act like it. Do it. Talks cheap. You want to feel better? Do these steps in their entirety. Talks cheap. I've been blessed to talk with several people this weekend about different things that's going on in their life, and that's always such an honor to me. It really is, and I appreciate you giving me your time. And uh, it, it's always amazing because uh, uh, we always want to uh, blame our situation on somebody else. Or it's an area of our life that we don't want to work the program in. Like porno gambling, shoplifting, all those things none of us would do, but they would. <laughs> and the reason I mention that, people might say that's an outside issue, and I would dare to argue, because I know we're losing people out of Alcoholics Anonymous right and left because of them. Because of them. What do I mean by that? We have to work these principles in all our affairs, every area of our life. 
it's awful easy to come to AA and look like you're reforming for an hour. How are you doing on the freeway? How are you doing at 2 o'clock in the morning when there's nobody around to impress and your head's going? That'll tell you how you're doing. You know? Uh, we've got to work this program at depth, and it's got to be at depth. And, and one of the reasons this, I liked anger is because it always kept me from really looking at me and what made me tick. You know? What really makes me tick? What do I, what's the payoff for me being angry? And I've already told you. It was power and a sense of control and a sense of being uh, 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 the master of my destiny. And I really was, you know. I had a faith. Part of forgiveness is a new kind of faith. But I had a faith then. It was called Murphy's Law. You know Murphy's Law? Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Just a matter of time. People like me can't do things like that. You don't seem to understand if you really knew all the places I'd been. Now, I not only said it, but I professed it, and it was my faith. And it came true time after time after time, even sober. I had to forgive myself. By the way, before I forget it, there's a basket in the back. Uh, the voice forgot to mention it, and I forgot to tell just now. If you got a question, go back there and write it, and he'll run it up. If you got a question about forgiveness, you want to... Uh, ask any time during one day, and if you don't want to, that's fine too. I just always like to offer that. I want to thank Lee too for asking me to do this workshop. He called me Thursday and said Francis couldn't make it, so, uh, I'm delighted to do it. But there's a basket back there. I lost my place. I gotta start all over. Hi, I'm Ed. I'm Al <laughs> But I gotta do this in every area of my life, and that shouldn't be scary. Look what it did for your alcoholism. Look what it did for your drug addiction. Look what it did for your ism. Why on earth would we be afraid to do it in every area of our life? Simple. We don't want it. I want happy, joyous, and free, but on my terms. I want the right to hate. I want the right to resent. I want the right to gossip. I want the right to spread crap about people. I want the right to think bad. I want the right to feel bad. I want the right, and I want to be happy. Okay. How's that work? And the answer, that's right, it doesn't work, and I tried that for a long time. I, honest to God, did. I thought I was doing well. This isn't just about not drinking. It's about a way of life that changes. And if I want to insist, what is the, what is the number one offender in the book? Resentment. If we don't take care of that in every area of our life, and if we keep building guilt that we got to build defenses and anger to defend, we can't get better. Nobody here is too bad to get better. That's another thing I had to figure out. I hated God. Why? Because I'd never be good enough. I know that. Oh, I'd be good for a while, and then I'd goof up again, you know. So he can't like me much. And one of the things I learned about the God that I know and love today is he loves me exactly the way I am right now, spots and all. In fact, the God that I know and love sees me without anything wrong with me because he sees the true me. What I see is what I create down here. And the whole idea of the 12 steps of my understanding is to create, dispense with the mess that I create so I can see God's idea for my life. 
and see me through God's eyes. You know, most of the problems people have today is child abuse. Now, what do I mean by that? We're all children of God, and we abuse ourselves completely. How do you forgive yourself? You do it. You start treating yourself as if you actually care about you. You start treating yourself the same way you good somebody you actually like. <laughs> that was a good comparison for me because I could I could do that. So okay, uh, you know that there's in the Bible it says uh, um, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and I thought I wouldn't treat my neighbor that bad. I kind of like them, you know. <laughs> that kind of rang a bell, <laughs> and I started thinking, well. You know, my neighbor's pretty much a stranger. Why would I treat him better than me that I've been with all my life? Lack of forgiveness is the term. Unwillingness to forgive me. For what? Being human. That's the worst I am. Human. I hear a lot of people today say, Oh, I only want to be human. I'll pass. <laughs> I've been about as human as I want to be. Thank you very much. What I want to be is spiritual. I believe we're gifted as human beings because we have the power to be spiritual. I want to rise above my humanness. And the only way I can do that is through a spiritual way of life called the 12 steps. You're living proof if you're sober here. If you're sober and you work these steps just on your sobriety, just on your drinking, you proved it. You proved it. I gotta forgive me because all of my life, one of the things I hated people, uh, only two types of people, living people and dead people. <laughs> no, the other ones were okay. I, I could put up with them. <laughs> but those other two. <laughs> but, um, uh, I hated them because I, I, I never, I never felt good. I never felt good about me ever. And all through my life, after an honest inventory, I realized, you know, there were people all through my life that tried to help me. I didn't like to hear that. Kind of ruins the martyr message, doesn't it? But they really tried to help me. There would be people who'd say, Ed, you're talented, you're gifted. All you have to do is apply yourself. Teachers and counselors. And I thought they were full of crap. And I'd dismiss them and I'd collect the ones, the negative. And I had to forgive me for that. That was on my amends list to go back and tell those teachers, I'm sorry I didn't listen to you. I'm sorry I, I thought you were kidding me. I didn't know you were telling me the truth. Self-forgiveness. If we're first on our amends list, we're last in our recovery. I'll tell you that. Because our amends list is about taking care of the damage we did out there. And amazingly enough, when I take care of the damage I did out there, I become better. There's an interesting line in the big book. I won't tell you where. You'll have to find it. It's called, uh, When the Spiritual Malady Was Addressed, the Physical and the Psychological, is that it? Physical or Emotional? Physical and emotional took care of itself. Huh. Isn't that funny? I don't know about you, but I had that all reversed. I thought when I got my act together and got things together, I'd think about this God. When I quit choking people, I'd think about God. Yeah. 
Missed it. Supposed to do the spiritual thing first. And we don't like that. And especially treatment centers don't like that because you can't charge you four grand for that. You know, they can't charge you. And, and nothing against treatment centers. They're all going to be closed pretty quick anyway. So, <laughs> And I don't mean that to be rude. They, they've, they've done a lot of good things and they've done a lot of bad things. Uh, but there, I know there's people in this room, because of a treatment center, you were here. My problem is I've buried thousands of people because of treatment centers. I'm glad you're here. And in your case, it worked. But in a lot of cases, it didn't. They were pushed into uh, sobriety long before they should have to improve the bottom line. And I even had to forgive that. And that was a good one. I like that. That kind of makes you feel real self-righteous. But I had to forgive that, too. Why did I forgive that and how did I forgive that? When I left the church a couple of years, for about a month, I worked as a counselor. And uh, they were wonderful to me. They were nice people who knew absolutely nothing about alcoholism. Nice, well-meaning, good-hearted people who were wonderful, knew nothing about alcoholism. Because they found that uh, recovering alcoholics in the treatment field aren't quite dependable because they have opinions. And... Um, and uh, now they're hiring people who aren't uh, recovering in a lot of places. And the sad part is they have no idea uh, of uh, what they're dealing with. And I worked with these people, and they were wonderful, kind people. I remember this little Indian uh, uh, in, from India uh, gal. And she was wonderful, and she knew nothing about anything, but she had a heart that was absolutely wonderful. She's killing people, but she had a heart that was absolutely wonderful. And they were telling people at this particular place, now, when you leave here, you need to get involved with the service organization like Kiwanis, maybe your church, or Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was able to work there for a month, <laughs> and I was grateful. Now, I was grateful for the job. They were nice. They held that job for me for eight months to go to work there. And I went up to the director. The other thing they wanted me to tell people, they had to be on pills forever, and I said, that's crap. They said, are you a doctor? And I said, I got more experience than any doctor you got on this staff. You want to argue? Let's argue. And I said, but that's crap. Are there some that need it? Absolutely. About this many. Not everyone. And I had to forgive that. And see, all that stuff can be bait for argument, can be self-righteousness, and I can be angry about it, but it does absolutely no good. Especially with me. Any anger I'm carrying, any resentment I'm carrying, any unwillingness to forgive anything in life has a direct reflection on the people I care about most. Even me. What good is it for me to go out there and carry a message of hate and resentment and anger? What good is it for us to carry that message at home with our kids? What good is it uh, to take it to work? <laughs> what good is it to spread it around in meetings? You know, the question is, are you carrying the message or the mess, you know? And a lot of times we carry the mess. But forgiveness is about a healing inside. And the 12 steps is the most excellent way I've ever found to find self-forgiveness. And it's not a matter of psychology. It really isn't to me. 
And, and please understand that there are some wonderful treatment centers around. I know that. And, and if I made, sounded like I was making general statements, I was. <laughs> Didn't mean to. So I'll make that amend right now. But uh, there are some out there that are doing wonderful work, but they're few. They're coming back stronger now because they're being more shadowed. Why? Because they're based in Alcoholics Anonymous instead of a, a lot of other things that are going around out there that they've experimented with human beings and they've lost badly. So, so I support any, any uh, return to Alcoholics Anonymous by treatment centers. But in forgiveness, uh, my ex-wife, my gosh, she is a, my kids hate me. Do you know how sad that makes me feel? I got a beautiful 18-year-old daughter, a uh, handsome 18-year-old son, 23-year-old son, and none of them will talk to me. Now, in the last 16 years, I've got to spend maybe five months with him. And when we were together, it was incredible. But you see, five months is enough to balance the hate. It wasn't enough time for them to look at who I am and how I am compared to what she remembers. You know, one thing that helped me to forgive is you got to remember, if you run into people who resent you from ten years ago, they remember you from ten years ago. That's their last reference, just like us. Family reunions. When we go back, we remember the last mess, don't we? Yeah, there's Fred. Remember 20 years ago? He got drunk. Probably still is, you know. <laughs> well, we do that, too. We've got to stay in the present moment of now. We've got to stay in the present moment of now. And remember that those other people remember us how we used to be. And if we did something that really hurt them, real or imagined, that's their power. That's their leverage, and that's what they're going to use. And then we have a choice. We can either give them power to hurt us or not. Or we can do what they call step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives. What else is there? Our, it doesn't say our alcoholism. It says our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand it. That infers we don't mess with it anymore, I believe, you know. That infers that we really do that. How many of us do it? You want to know who your God is? What you spend most of your time thinking about. Think about it. That's your God. If it's anger at the ex, if it's anger at work, if it's sex, if it's drinking, that's your God. And the only power we have to do to, to change that is to change our minds. And we do that one moment at a time. When I have to deal with that ex-wife, by the way, last year I was paying her child support through Iowa for 12 years. And when I left the Methodist church and, and started this new church, things were a little tight. And Iowa was fed up because they couldn't get the proper documentation from her. So they said, we're not handling it anymore. Sent it back to California, and I got a bill for $487,300. And they said to me, we don't care you've been paying Iowa. You were supposed to be paying us. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I laughed. I said, God, can't wait to see what you're going to do with this one. <laughs> they want me to send them $16,000 a month. I thought, yeah, you bet. 
Now I had a choice there. I could have gotten really enraged and really self-righteous and really this and really that. What I did is what I've been taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I called the the place and waited on hold for 30 years. <laughs> and uh, this guy come on and I said, you know, I've been paying child support. I got all the records and that and then ship them out. And that's been a year. And uh, uh, this new church has had a lot of financial struggles. I've lost pretty much everything in the last couple of years yet, which fine. You know, I don't care. Uh, it'll all come back if it's supposed to. But I haven't been able to pay like I wanted to pay either. But I pay whatever I can, and they, they know my records. I send them my bank statements, everything. So they know that I'm doing the very best I can. And every day, I don't whine about that. I don't set up, wake up startled at night about half a million dollars. How am I going to do that? That's not my job. Why isn't it my job? I told you just a minute ago. I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. If He wants me to pay $500,000, cough it up. <laughs> Now, I'll tell you something I've learned. He will. He will. It's about changing our heart and changing our mind. That's what forgiveness is about. That God I resented for years and wouldn't talk about, man, I just love hanging out with him now. He's with me everywhere, and I try to talk to him every chance I remember. I try to make my every conscious thought something about God. Like I said last night, my desire is to make my every thought a prayer. And I have a God today that takes better care of me than I ever dreamed of. And the reason for that is the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in step three. I made the decision to actually believe that, and I had to recommit to that about a year ago. When I'm sitting there and I'm sitting in my office and uh, uh, the rent's due, utilities due, and I'm thinking... God, was I wrong about this church? Was I wrong about leaving that one? You know, that parsonage and that retirement plan and, and, and that, that car uh, allowance. You know, that was pretty good stuff. Was I wrong? And, uh, I'm sitting there in my office and a little gal comes in and talks to me and says, uh, Pastor Ed, when God tells you to do something, should you do it? And I said, absolutely. Because <laughs> I know the gal. She's not crazy. And in our big book, it says that we're going to talk to God daily. Said we're going to be inspired and have thoughts given and going all day. If you've missed that, you've missed the program. But um, she came in and said, uh, if God told you to do something, would you do it? And I said, yeah, absolutely. She said, would you do it halfway? And I said, no, I'd do it all the way. She said, okay, there's a check on your desk for 500 bucks. I'm going home and get the other 500 because you told me to give you a 1,000. <laughs> Unsolicited, didn't pray for it, didn't ask for it. Remember my story last night about thank you? The toughest thing we have to do is just say thank you and not question it, not second guess it. I simply said thank you with tears in my eyes because she had no way of knowing that the utilities, everything was due that day. Came to $900, and some odd cents. And a few weeks later, she came back to me and she said, thank you. I want to say thank you. And I said, for what? And she said, for just saying thank you. I've always wanted to do nice things like that. And you just saying thank you made, didn't make me feel awkward. And I really want to thank you for that. I had to change my mind about God. I really had to make a commitment to the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and live them. 
This is not an intellectual program. It's not a program of issues. People come up to me and say, oh, I have so many issues. I said, oh, got any old playboy? You know. <laughs> Just annoying, you know. Because the reality of it is, if I've worked my steps, the issues should have been taken care of. And if I'm deleting that part of my life out of the program, that's why I'm having problems. Forgiveness. I believe I deserve the very best in the world that God gives me. And that ain't ego. I had to fight to get there. I had to believe that God loves me just as much as he loves you. And the only way I could do that is forgive the past and forgive all the ammo I had about this whole God thing. When you get into step 11, 86, 87, 88, uh, when you take that review at night with step 10, you know, how can you go to sleep on a soft pillow if you've been mean and angry and unforgiving all day? And if you're walking around mean and angry, it's called not willing to forgive something. Isn't it? I have a little, uh, I told you my story last night when I threw the guy over the car. I don't do that anymore. I haven't done that in some time, but I'll tell you what. I use that as one of my wonderful signs. If I start getting grumpy with the driver in front of me, that's a sign. I need to work right here. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. And the more I have, uh, the more I have an insistence on resolving the problem here and working these steps in my life, the better chance I have of living in. You know, in the book, it talks about having a piece of heaven right here on earth. When you read those promises, do you hear those words? That's your guarantee. Guarantee. If you'll only do it. And why can't we do that? Because it isn't comfortable. It isn't familiar. The program to me is to challenge me to be uncomfortable. What is uncomfortable? Stop being sick. Hey, Dad, I like being crazy. Thank you very much. to act well. Now, why don't I want to act well? Because then they'll expect it. You know what I mean? Yeah, you act like it's going good now, but if you had a bad day later, see, you know? So I'll just be goofy all the time. Yet if I loved myself and if I really cared about myself, wouldn't I want to be happy, joyous, and free? All the people around me in AA, that's all they ever wanted for me. All they ever wanted for me was the best life had to offer for me. I really had to get to the point where I knew I wasn't a piece of trash. I knew that deep in my soul and all the nice things that were said about me didn't matter. All the kind things you could say and all the love I'd got from people didn't matter because I thought I knew the truth. I'm so pleased to tell you that I was wrong. And I'm free from that now. There's an old saying that's corny now. It's been overused and overused, but God doesn't make junk. And I believe God made everybody here. And everybody I come in contact with. 
And what do I want for you? The very best God has to offer you. And I have to insist on that for me. Because I'm one of God's kids too. That's what the steps taught me. It says deep down inside of us. That's where we're going to find God. God isn't out here. If you're looking in a building, if you're looking in a situation, if you're looking for him or her, good luck. Been there, done that, got the tattoos and the t-shirt, you know, geez. But God is right here. God is right here. The healing is right here. The program is right here. As long as I keep it here, it don't get here. As long as I keep it here and I don't put it into these feet, it don't get here. Can't get here unless I put these to work. I have to put it into action. I have to give what I wish to receive. And I said it last night. I asked my sponsor one time. I said, how do you be a gentleman? He said, you act like one. And I thought, boy, I would have never thought of that. <laughs> you want to change? Act like you want to be sane, be sane. Do the work you need to do to be sane and then get on with the business of living. And in the book it says, this program has returned me to sanity. And sanity is loving the person that God made inside of me. I don't like the word self-esteem, I like the word God-esteem. Because I believe in God's in every one of us. So if I feel some God esteem, you got to have it too. And you got to have it too. So it lifts us all up. It isn't about me. It's about God as I understand. <laughs> A lot of people say to me, how could I forgive the guy who killed my father? And all of them. I need to tell you that the trigger man... Uh, the Sherman, who got out of prison, uh, was a lookout, and he kind of got, I found out later, he kind of got hustled into going. But the trigger man is out in Arizona at the federal prison out there, and uh, he pistol-whipped everybody and shot him four or five times and then pistol-whipped him again. And I wrote him a letter. And I said, uh, Glenn, my name's Reverend Ed Muter. I'm here to tell you that I love you. And God loves you. And I'm the son of Clifford Newton. You may remember him from the Shamrock. And I just want you to know that if there's anything I can ever do to make your life better, let me do that. I didn't expect to hear back from him. I just knew what I needed to do. I needed to clear my side of the street. And see, forgiveness isn't nothing if you don't tell them they are. It's self-serving then. Forgiveness isn't about serving of self. It's about healing. It's about moving on. And I never heard from him for months. And I, to be honest with you, I kind of forgot about it. And then it was Christmas Eve a year ago. I was preparing for service and went home to check my mail. And there's a letter from Glenn. And Glenn said, you know, Reverend Needham, it took me a long time to write you back because you're one of the last people I ever expected to hear from. And Glenn has uh, killed three other people since he's been in prison. And one of the things I said in the letter is I said, I'm so sorry for the decisions you've made in your life. I know it must be hard living your life. And he said, you know, I never thought of it that way, but it was me. And he said, I don't think you can ever help me at all. 
but the fact that you offered me helps me more than you can ever imagine. And I got a little letter from him a little while back, and he said, Reverend Rudema, my mother's dying. Can you help me see my mom before she dies? I'm going to do whatever I can, because that's my job. Not because I'm a minister, because I'm a child of God. And Glenn's my brother. Did he screw up? Absolutely. Who in here hasn't? Whatever you're unwilling to forgive, look at your own inventory. I don't know about you, but there's three things on my inventory that I've done to people. If I want to get mad, I look at those from time to time. And if I can get through all three, I have the right to get a resentment. <laughs> Usually don't get past one. Usually don't get past one. You know, when we take an inventory, we write that inventory. And before, if you're like me, by God, we want justice. I want, I want justice. I'm tired of being taken advantage of. I want justice. And you write a good inventory and you take a good fifth step and you come out of there going... I'd like mercy, please. <laughs> mercy for me. Thank you very much. Because I... you understand, if it's justice, you've got to pay for everything you've ever done. How'd you like? It's all, always like people who whine about getting a drunk driving. I always say, think about all the times you should have been caught. Oh, yeah. I... <laughs> Reality, what a concept. <laughs> but it's true. Any questions back there? Anybody written anything? Oh, yeah. Or have I solved forgiveness? <laughs> Thank you. Are you going to keep going on and on and no? <laughs> Ed, would you recommend any daily or other meditation books? Yes. 86, 87, and 88. <laughs> it's the most unread, underestimated meditation ever. In those three pages, it tells you how to live every second of every moment of every minute of every day of your life. What, how to start it, how to end it, and what happens if you get in a jam in between. I would really recommend them. I love scripture. I love the book of James because they're asking for other books. Uh, actually, the book of James is what Alcoholics Anonymous was based on before they wrote the big book. They held meetings out of the book of James, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and uh, Sermon on the Mount, Emmett Fox. So I would recommend both of those. I like James because it's straight ahead. It doesn't waste any words. You know me, I kind of beat around the bush. But James is pretty good. <laughs> How do I forgive myself? I think I kind of covered that, but let me go over it again. How you give, forgive yourself is you start to understand that you have every right to be here, that you are not a mistake, that we love you and we're delighted you're here, and it's about time you did too. You're not a mistake. You were just looking for a place to land, and you've landed, and we're glad. How you can forgive yourself is start taking care of it and pay attention to these steps. Pay attention. When I'm in that great feeling of resentment toward another person, 
Why do I want to stay there, like a pig in a mud pond? <laughs> Yay, John. You know, isn't it funny? No, well, serious, we can be, we can be doing good. We, I don't know about you, but I can be doing good. And I, this is a terrible analogy, but it's the one God gave me, so be mad at him. Uh, <laughs> that's true. We'll be walking along, you know, and most people, if they stepped on a piece of dog crap, they'd go, oh, my God. We go, Then we go to a meeting and say, I feel so crappy today. That's it. You know, oh, don't worry about me. I'm doing fine. This is what I was, we love the pain. The pain's familiar. As long as it's screwed up, I know how to operate there. It's that, ha I remember calling my sponsor one day. And I said, Clance, something's going on. I don't know what's going on. He said, well, how's work, Ed? And I said, good, good. He said, how's meeting? I said, good. Yeah, good. And I was married at the time. He said, how's the wife and kids? I said, yeah, good, good. He said, Ed, you know what's wrong? I said, huh? He said, nothing. I went, oh. <laughs> New territory. I remember the day the knot in my gut relaxed. I went into old Bill Rupp at 26th and Broadway holding my stomach. Saying, call the doctor, Bill, something's wrong. And he said, why? I said, everything just released and my stomach feels like it's going to fall out. He said, that's just the knot in your gut, kid. You're getting better. And I went, oh. <laughs> but the reality was, I'd always had a knot in my gut. I'll talk about it. it makes no sense. But uh, one of the things, this came to mind. Wayne, Wayne probably went through it. This came to mind to me a while back. Acceptance is what we're talking about, really. And uh, for a lot of years, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm big for my age. <laughs> Still am. And uh, for a lot of years, you couldn't find shoes, even 13. You could get 12s, but you couldn't find 13 unless you had some big bucks. And I mean big bucks. Well, where I come from, you didn't have big bucks. So I would cram these size 15s into 12s. See, that's your reaction, but when you don't have a choice, you do it. Acceptance. And I am delighted that I can wear 15s today. Three years ago, I bought a bed for the first time that I actually fit in. <laughs> it's called the Big Kahuna. <laughs> And it, 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 it's four inches wider than a California king, and it's a foot longer than a California king, hence Big Kahuna. <laughs> and when I got in bed that night, I realized that is the first time in my life that I remember that I ever got into a bed I fit into. It took me a few days to adjust, but it was right. You get me? Just because you're going through some uncomfort, adjusting doesn't mean it's wrong. 
means that when you do inventories and when you do that, you're going to get uncomfortable. To get right. To get right. Uh, any more questions? Is that it? We're about done anyway. Uh, on forgiveness, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions. Uh, and I'm going to give you a charge. <laughs> you know what I mean by a charge in churches? I'm going to give you something to think about. And it's simply going to be this. I challenge each and every one of you to start treating yourself as if you actually belong here. To stop the child abuse. You are a child of God. Stop the abuse. To work these steps with a new perspective and a new look and a new light. One of healing, not one of torture, but one of healing. The 12 steps are the spiritual hospital. And a lot of people in long-time sobriety are in intensive care and they go everywhere but here. This is the best place I know to forgive. Especially the old timers. God, we make mistakes. But thank God we learn. Because then we can pass it on to the newcomer and say, don't do that. I'd suggest you not do that. I have learned this. That the worst of my life's experience because of forgiveness and healing has become my most powerful tools in my ministry and in life. Greatest Christmas gift I got last year was a letter from a retreat that I'd given. And the lady wrote and said, you probably don't remember me, and I don't. But I was so pleased that she wrote me. She said, you spent a few minutes talking to me, and I wanted to tell you that this is the first, I got it right after, after Christmas. Said that this is the first Christmas in 25 years that I didn't resent my mother and we had a wonderful time. I wouldn't take a million dollars for that. There was a man walked up to me before I talked last night and uh, he knew a new friend of mine just passed away. I got to meet him when he was full of cancer. And we were able to talk about his resentment toward God and why he had to go. And he came up and hugged me and he said, you know, I spent the last day of Rob's life with him. And he said, what you shared with him made him go home peacefully. I wouldn't trade that. You take all the jobs, all the stuff in the world. Yet I couldn't if I didn't do what this program asked. Forgiveness is hard. But it's the most healing thing I've ever Today, there's nobody else I want to be. I always spent my whole life wanting to be somebody else, some other place, some other time. And man, I love hanging out with me now. I am enough for the first time in my life. As the result of Alcoholics Anonymous. Do I make mistakes? Of course I do. But yesterday's history and tomorrow's mystery. I'll tell you one thing I do that helps me with self-forgiveness more than anything else I know. And it's kind of religious, and for those of you who aren't, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. What I mean by that is I don't mean to offend anybody by it. But when I take a shower, I like to take a shower at least one a day, maybe two or three sometimes. But when I get into the shower in the morning, I wash away the sins of the world from yesterday. And I wait till they're gone, till I get out of the shower. Because the one thing God's given us is a fresh start now in honor AA. Each and every day. I want full advantage of that. 
When I drink a glass of water, I wash away the sins of the world, my sins. When I wash my hands, I got to remember that I'm forgiven. Because that's the God that I know and love. And you are too. It's an incredible way to live. God keeps bringing this to mind, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, the God that I know and love, because I, I just I just want to help people because I want to help people. Wayne and I were talking about that. I'm in a position to do that, and that's such a blessing. And there's a lot of times starting this new church and this retreat that I don't know where the next time's coming from, but I'll tell you what I believe. I believe God knows my heart, and I believe he knows yours too. That's why you're here, and that's uh, that's why you need to be here, and that's why these steps are given to you. God's decision is not for you to be miserable. That's your choice. If you want to be happy, joyous, and free, here's his choice, which are all based in Scripture or the Quran or whatever else you want to look at, any spiritual material. But I believe this. I believe that uh, there's a lot of rewards out there, and I'm not interested in any of them. And as a result of that, I get all of them. I have a friend who's been sending me some money every month, never met him family that heard about my ministry, never knew. And I walk in uh, last month, and they were, I was supposed to finally get to meet them in Texas. I was going down there to talk, and I thought, man, that's going to be great. You know? And they couldn't make it. And I came in, and I said, uh, uh, there was a card. And it was a Monday morning, and I opened up the card, and it was from them. And I thought, how great. And they sent me a little check for the church, just like they always do. And I thought, isn't that nice? Because they don't know. And I just appreciate it. And the card was really moving, saying very wonderful things about me because they've heard different tapes and different things I've done. And I thought, wow. And I looked and I thought, ooh, 89 bucks. That's $89.50. That's a chunk of cash. And I really appreciate it. And I looked at it again and I realized it was $8,950. Do you know what I've been saying lately? I just believe in you, God. I'll do what you need me to do. I'll walk through the fear. Do what you need me to do. And he has blessed me abundantly. And the other thing he's taught me is I don't need anything from any other human being anymore. What a freedom. I learned that through the steps. And I learned that through emotional sobriety and language of the heart, written by Bill Wilson that my dependency is on a God I believe in. And I didn't learn to believe in the God I love and know in seminary. In fact, I help them with God now. <laughs> it's one of the greatest... The, the first... This and then I'll close. The first... Uh, first, I went to this 1,200-member church and uh, the senior pastor came into me two days later and said, Ed, we're glad you're here. And he said, you know, I've been in this business 30 years. I know all the ins and outs, and I'll be happy to help you with this and that. And he said, there's one thing I'd like you to do for me. And I said, what's that? And he said, teach me about God. Now, I'll tell you, there would have been a time when I would have resented a pastor who's been a pastor for 30 years who didn't know about God. I've come to admire them because they're trying to do one of the most difficult jobs there is. You get called into the worst situations in life time and time and time again. For 30 years, he'd been doing that, searching. And something about my relationship with God told him that I could help him. And I said, well, there's one way I can really show you that. And I said, I need to take you through the steps. And he went, okay. And I said, okay, I want you to call me every day. <laughs> 
and you will take your four step with me. <laughs> now here's the amazing thing about it. He had been on Prozac for 30 years. He's now been off four and a half. He was one of the most boring pastors I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> Get it over. And now he gives sermons that I like to listen to. These 12 steps are a gift from God to you, not to the person beside you, to you. Let's treat them like that. Let's value them. But most importantly, let's supply them. And the biggest application of these steps that I know of is forgiveness of self and those around us to act like we really believe there is a God. Thank you. Good evening. My name's Ed Mutum, and I'm an alcoholic. Hello. By the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering drug since January 5th of 1971, and for that I'm extremely grateful and uh, pleased for Alcoholics Anonymous to be in my life and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous allowing me to be a part of it. You know, it is a privilege. It's not a guarantee. And uh, God, I love being here. There's been so many people that I've seen this weekend. Uh, Cliff and Pat. God, we go back 30 years. I was at Matt's first meeting when he walked in 30 years ago. Wayne, I've known him through all his personalities. (laughs) And I'll tell you what I love, absolutely love about Wayne is he's here. No, I mean it. You know, a lot of people find reasons to leave, especially when we make mistakes and bad things happen to us and all that. He's here. He's always here, and I love him for that, and I respect him for that. Uh, he's a good active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I love being sober. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love God, and I don't apologize for any of the three anymore. Used to felt I owed an apology when I tell you especially about the God thing, you know. And Cliff and Pat, my God, uh, uh, you're in for a treat. If you haven't heard Cliff and or Pat, either one, you're in for a treat tomorrow. It'll be a blessing, I promise you. Well, Cliff's talk will be fun. <laughs> and uh, I love Cliff's talk because, you know, with the people I'm talking about, we go back 30 years. And when, and, and when Cliff and Pat talk about that crazy household, I was there. I understand. I saw. I saw the insanity. But more importantly is I saw the healing brought about by the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And, uh, you know, this is a place of hope. And, and I think sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle. For those of you who don't know me, no, I don't play basketball and the weather's fine up here. We'll get... <laughs> they always think it's original. Oh, how's the weather up there? <laughs> I used to have an answer, but I can't tell you from a podium anymore. <laughs> Now I just say heavenly, thank you. <laughs> Beats what I used to say, I promise you. <laughs> and it's always the same size person asking the same two questions. <laughs> First question is, Al, oh, how tall are you? 
Six ten. Oh, you played basketball? <laughs> no. How tall are you? Five four. You play miniature golf? <laughs> it's their deal, man. <laughs> And it's always fun coming into the airport, especially with these smaller jets now. It's purgatory for me. I don't know about you, but you're just halfway between heaven and hell when you cram me in one of those. And uh, I used to think I had to do things to get attention. All I had to do was show up, you know. All I had to do was show up. I, uh, I love Lee. I want to thank Lee for being here. You know, tapers sometimes get a bad rap, and... And uh, Lee always reminds me of, 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 of what I need to say, probably more often than I do. And that's, uh, for years, I, I had trouble with tapers. I remember years ago when they did it, the reel-to-reel. Remember, Cliff? And they'd ask you, get your written permission to tape and do all that. And then uh, as years went on, it graduated. But I, I used to get, I used to get uh, stuck in my crawl a little bit that they were taping and selling tapes and making money off that. Well, number one, if you know a taper, and hey, hey, they, none of them are wealthy, I promise you. <laughs> but, but years later, what I found out is, is it was uh, back in 1988 when I moved back to Iowa. I had just gone through a divorce, and it was one of those wonderful ones where we wanted to say goodbye with guns. And uh, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang like five times late in the morning. And as soon as I'd pick it up, They'd, there'd be no answer. And about the fifth time, my keen mind knew who it was. It was her. And about the fifth time, it rang, and honest to God, it was one, two in the morning. About the fifth time, I just screamed, who is this? And a little voice said, is this Ed M. that speaks in AA? And I said, yeah, who's this? And she told me her name, and she said, I'm five years sober, and I was sitting here with a gun in my lap, and I heard your tape. Can you talk to me for a minute? From that day to this, tape it, dupe it, sell it, do whatever you want. With it. <laughs> you know, what they do is a ministry that saves a lot of lives. Appreciate the effort. Really do. Uh, I, uh, I come from a very elite group of people called white trash. <laughs> it wasn't easy. We had a certain image to maintain. <laughs> When you have a place in society, there's certain things you have to do. <laughs> Car parked in your yard, go to jail a lot, and please come to your house. You know. <laughs> work, 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 work. <laughs> and I loved, I loved Wayne uh, today. His talk, there's so much of it identify. I don't know about you, but my earliest memories in life was I didn't belong here. I didn't fit in, and something's wrong. Something's wrong, and I had no idea what it was, but I knew it was going on in me, and it probably wasn't going on in you. I knew that. And from a very early age, I didn't like where I lived, my family, and I instinctively knew that was all wrong. So I did the other thing that almost killed me. I never told anybody about that. Never told anybody about it. I didn't like who I was, where I lived. Or anything. For years, I always thought, you know, you used to hear it all the time in AA about being kidnapped, you know. And I always thought I was kidnapped from a wealthy family. That was my idea. <laughs> Don't laugh. I still run the ad every now and then. <laughs> October 1950. Boy missing? <laughs> they don't respond. But uh, 
I just felt different and I felt bad. And I looked out at the world and I didn't like what I saw. And that didn't change for a long, long time. I, uh, I, I laugh and joke about that very elite group called White Trash, but I need to tell you it took me a good 25 years sober to finally not feel that way. Isn't that something? It took me 25 years sober to realize that I'm brand new today because God says I am. And I don't care what anybody else says because they can't overrule it. You know, and that was important for me. That was important for me to, 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 to go through because, you know, Wayne did a great job going through the steps, but I think one of our biggest problems today is, and the steps really unload the garbage, but my biggest problem was not knowing my goodness. Not knowing my goodness. You know, you always heard that saying, when you point your finger at somebody else, there's three pointing back. Would you ever notice that's always in a negative nature? When you see someone else's defects, it's a reflection of your own. Well, guess what? What I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is when I see somebody else's goodness, it's a reflection of my own. It's the only way I can see it. If I name it, i got to claim it. I learned that here. And that was something for a guy like me to learn, because when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not deserve to breathe a breath. I was wasting air, and I knew it. I started something else when I was real young, and it took me years to quit it, years sober to quit it. And I could walk into a room of 200 or 300 people, and 299 could turn around and say, Ed, you're the best, man. We love you. And one could go, jerk. <laughs> Guess who got my full attention? <laughs> but here's the sick part. Not only did they get my full attention, but eventually the 299 didn't even exist anymore. It was just the ones. And if you're a little kid like I am and you start picking up those ones and putting them in your pack early, it gets heavy quick. And you need some relief. You need some relief. And thank God uh, my dad drank a lot. Thank God uh, he was alcoholic. Thank God for all that stuff I used to whine about. Because he started feeding me beer at a very early age, and I'm real pleased about it. Clancy always talks about going boom, and I was drinking before I knew what boom was. I didn't, you know. All I knew is this. Eventually, if I took a few drinks, I felt better. The hole in my gut with the wind blowing through stopped. What I know now is peace is what I experienced chemically, but I never knew it. And I didn't recognize it when I had it. I just knew that I liked it. And eventually, whatever it took to get that sense, even in passing, I would do. If I had to steal it to get it, then I'd do it. And if I couldn't steal it, I'd lay down beside it and claim it, you know? Uh, whatever I had to do, whatever I had to take, whosoever heart I had to break. My mothers, the ex-wives, the people who loved me. You know, uh, when I took my inventory, it wasn't the big podium stuff, you know? True story, one time in Scott County Jail, I beat a guy almost to death, and I was stark raving sober. That didn't bother me near as much as the look in my mother's eye. One more time. Beat me all you want. Take that memory away from me. And I was full of memories and what might have been some onlys. And thank God for booze. Thank God for booze, because it preserved me to get me to you. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 10 years old. 
I've got a brother in South Carolina, sober 45 years. He's so dry, we don't let people smoke around him anymore. <laughs> fire hazard, dry, dry, fire hazard, you know. <laughs> but he's a good guy. He's a wonderful guy, and he took me to A&A. And uh, I remember sitting there, and there was some old guy up here, about 30. You know, just absolute burnout, you could tell. My name's Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, good for you, Fred, you know. And I thought, you know, if I ever get old and burn out, I'll be here too. I didn't know I was a prophet at that point. It took years later. And the reason I share that with you is just for one reason. I went back out there, and, and I had ten more years of being on the streets and doing whatever I had to do. And I didn't once think, you know, i got to go back to A&A, walk up those 12 golden steps and find God. What I thought was if those cops would just leave me alone, I'd be all right. If I wasn't born to this family, I'd be all right. Anybody just cut me a break, I'd be all right. That was my problem. And alcohol made it disappear temporarily. I uh, was arrested by the Iowa Highway Patrol at the ripe old age of 13 for possession of a double-barrel 12-gauge shotgun that was 14 inches long. I had already gotten to the point where you weren't going to hurt me anymore. If there was going to be hurt, I'll do it. And I already got to admire the, the fact that the, the cops may take me out and I'd be a hero. You know, when I came to AA, they lied to me. They said, you know, if you keep drinking and using, you're going to die. And I thought, cool, where do I sign up? And they said, you know, we want to restore your life. When I came to AA, I said, oh, no thanks, I'll pass. I'd rather have another one if you don't mind. <laughs> That's pretty much hell out there. Thank you very much. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. I got it. Uh, that's all well-meaning stuff, but it isn't applicable to everybody. It certainly wasn't to me. It's like telling the God when I, I got sober when I was 20 years old. And people come up to me and say, Oh, it's so nice to see you young people get here before you really had to hurt. <laughs> and at that time when I got sober, I was 20 years old. I had felony records as long as both arms. I had been committed to the Iowa State Mental Institution, termed psychotic, neurotic, insanely violent, hopelessly addicted to drugs, and chronic alcoholic. I'd been married and divorced, and they're saying, you haven't even been around the block yet. <laughs> I thought, how big is this block? <laughs> it gets much bigger. You guys are going to have to go for me. But, you know, I hear that from time to time, and I, I understand it's well-meaning when people say, oh, I wish I would have got it when I, I was your age. Oh, you wish you would have been dying then instead of now? Is that... <laughs> well, think about it. Would anybody here, and I, have, I hate cancer. I absolutely hate cancer. Take some wonderful people out of my life all the time. I hate cancer. So I don't mean any disrespect by this at all, believe me. But would any of us, if we had the cancer and recovered, Go into a young person's room who had cancer and say, oh, my cancer was worse than yours. Aren't you glad you didn't have, you didn't hurt like I did? How stupid would that be? And what's the difference? You know, what's the difference? I, uh, January 5th of 1971, I got sober. I didn't mean to. Wasn't in my Palm Pilot. Nowhere. <laughs> no, wasn't there. 
wasn't there. I, I was out, and uh, I, I was going back to A&A from time to time. And uh, I, had, uh, I was one of those people that uh, used illicit drugs, as Johnny said. that Back then, we were called dope fiends. It was a lot more fun than addict. <laughs> oh, I'm a poo-poo addict. Uh, I like dope fiend. You know, Johnny says it right, dope fiend. And uh, and I don't know about you, but I was a shaker. You know, we were talking at dinner. You don't see any good shakers anymore. They medicate them up too much. Yeah. We need some good shakers, you know. <laughs> How you doing, Ed? All good. How are you? God. For God's sakes, don't put anything in my head because you didn't know where it was going, boy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and I had two rules. Don't get behind me and don't touch me. Very two simple, very rules. Very simple rules. And I, I, I'm real grateful there was an old guy, Harry S., Harry Stevens, passed away in central discussion. And I was sharing this with Wayne. It, it, it just came to me a few years ago how, how wonderful he was to me, and I didn't even know it. He'd pour coffee in the meetings at Central Discussion. Remember my two rules. Don't come up behind me and don't touch me. Because I was quick. And uh, Harry didn't care about my rules, basically. <laughs> Harry'd come by and he'd pour coffee and he'd put his hand right here on my shoulder. And he'd pour the coffee. And the strangest thing I'd ever known happened. I became peaceful. The voices stopped. The war stopped, and I was okay, and I could breathe, and then Harry'd go, and he'd fill some more cups, and I'd drink my coffee just as quick as I could, so Harry'd come back and touch me again. You see, I was too tough to tell you that, man, I needed that human touch so bad, that one of unconditional love, that one of purity and unadulterated love. Harry, he saved my life. And that's my only regret is I didn't say to him, Harry, you saved my life. It is important what we say to people in Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe. And like Wayne, I used to have one of those sarcastic mouths that I just deeply regret. Uh, but there was another guy I experienced I'll share with you quick and was out at 26th and Broadway. A guy named Jimmy R., Jimmy Ryan, he passed away from a heart attack. But but uh, Jim was from Texas. He lived in Malibu, and he was a rapid-fire Texan. He'd talk like this. He'd give you three talks inside of one. You know what I mean? He was just rapid-fire. He said, one time I asked some psychologist why I rubbed my hands together like this. He told me I smacked that dude right in the mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy was great. He was just wonderful. And I, in sobriety, went through a lot of deep, dark depressions as well. I worked the steps, and I no longer have those depressions. I know that upsets a lot of people. <laughs> Pray for me. You know? <laughs> Don't rationalize with me. Just pray for me. And uh, it was very important. It was very important because uh, I was in this deep, dark place. I was living in my sponsor's garage, and uh, things were looking up. And uh, <laughs> my plan was to go, two and a half years sober, mind you, my plan was to go and turn on the big coffee pots in the garage, let the gas go, and just go to sleep. Two and a half years sober. No notes. No funsies. I'm done. My head's saying, you're a failure at AA. 
It may work for those other folks. They're happy, Ed. But you're crazy. You're crazy. And and I am not going to drink or use. So I only got one recourse. And eventually, if you work the program and in sobriety, you'll take that out as an option, too. But that was my plan. I was going to go home, uh, go home, go to the garage, turn on the gas. <laughs> it was home. Uh, go home, turn on the gas, and go to sleep. That was my plan. I walk into the club, and then, who's there but Jimmy Ryan? And if Jimmy said it to me once, he said it to me a thousand times. And if he saved me once, he saved me a hundred times. But I would walk up to Jim, and I'd say, Jim, how are you? And it was like the world stopped. And he looked right into my eyes, and he said, I'm much better for seeing you, my friend. I'm much better for seeing you. He saved my life that day. Because if a nice guy like Jimmy likes me, Maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm worth saving. Now imagine if he would have said, get away from me, you crazy, self-obsessed jerk. Not Jimmy. I'm much better for seeing you, my friend. And I am extremely better for knowing Jim. So it is important, you say. I remember I was laying in the middle of the street. It was a car wreck that night. I was laying in the middle of the street pretending like I was knocked out. I'm not sure why. It seemed like a good idea at the moment. <laughs> and uh, the police came up, and I was like Wayne. I was a cop fighter. I don't care if you were crossing guard. If I saw a badge, I'd swing at you. you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I went up there and, and uh, was laying in the middle of the street. It was 18 below zero on this January night. And uh, I was laying in the middle of the street, and the cops come up and said, uh, that's Mutum. Don't even touch him. He's the scum of the earth. Don't even cover the SOB. He's a punk. Car's probably hot. Just leave him lay there. To this day, I have no feeling in this little finger from the cement where it froze. But I'll tell you what was amazing to me is I didn't fight. For some reason that night, I agreed. For some reason that night, I knew that I was there by my own decisions. It wasn't about how I was raised, what I did or didn't have, how I was discriminated against because I was poor white trash and everybody else could get an education except me. It was none of that crap. It was called alcoholism. It was called Ed. And that combination put me there. And I knew where to come, thank God. But I didn't even have to make that decision. They took me to the hospital and they rolled me past this nurse and she said, Ed, want me to call AA? And I went, might as well. <laughs> now, us old timers want to know why you knew people can't be sincere like we were in the old days. You know? <laughs> and some guy next day, next day came up, Hap, Hap L, Hap Lincoln. He passed away. God bless him. Hap come up to the hospital and God, there's nothing like being hung over and having a brain concussion and have somebody named Happy coming to see you. <laughs> And he walked in the room and said, Hi, Ed, my name's Hap. And I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, get out of my room. Jeez. <laughs> and I don't know why I got honest that day. I have no idea why. He said, We don't drink and we don't use one day at a time. And I said, You don't seem to understand. I can't make it a whole day. I can't make it a whole day without something to ease this mind. And he said, Well, all you got to do is try. And that's the only thing I've done consistently for the last 33-plus years, 12,000-plus days, is try, sometimes greatly, sometimes poorly, but I try. And I started going to meetings, and it was good. Old Logan was there. Logan, God bless him, we buried him last year with 56 years of sobriety. 
And I was about six months sober, and I had my feet up on the table, and Logan walked in. He said, you think you got all the answers, don't you, kid? And I said, no, but I was thinking, yep, pretty much got this wrapped up. (laughs) And he said, let me tell you something. I was young once, but you've never been old. (laughs) I was young once, but you've never been old. It is the first time in my entire life I ever considered the possibility you have felt the way I feel. What an act of grace. What an act opening that door so I could step in just a little bit more. Now, the trouble with getting sober is they bring up that three-letter word. You all know which one I'm talking about. Job. (laughs) Wayne understands. And, of course, that other three-letter word, God. I was not like Wayne. I thought for years I was an atheist or an agnostic but I had knowledge of a God, and I hated everything I knew. Sorry, but I did. You see, I was taught about a God that when I was 10 years old, I had a cousin named Linda who was wonderful. And if there was ever anybody God-like, it was Linda. She was wonderful. She was beautiful. She did everything right. She was in an honor roll. She got a full scholarship. I just hated her. And... Uh, <laughs> Because she was so good, but I also thought, you know, if there's anybody ever close to God, it's Linda. And one day she was walking to work and a truck hit her, knocked her 200 feet and killed her. And you know the ones I picked out of that, remember my 299 to 1? The ones I picked out were the people that said, God must have wanted an angel. Oh, so he hits you with a truck? I'll pass. Still do. Pass. And I had that. In, in Where I lived, I saw things adults shouldn't see, let alone children. And everybody would say things like, God must have had a better purpose for them. God must have saved them from something else in their life. Well, I'll pass on this guy. Sounds like a punk to me. Still does. And I was angry. So you brought that stuff around me. We're going to talk. I'll tell you something funny. A few years ago, I started a a place where I'm building a retreat, please, God. And my office is on that very corner my cousin was killed. And every day when I walk across that street, I celebrate Linda. You see, a few years back, I learned something about me. And Wayne touched on it today. But I learned something about me. About about a year ago, a guy walked into my office and he said... uh, it was Monday, and he said, well, he said, uh, Friday, I'm really going to have a tough weekend. And I said, why is that? And he said, it's the anniversary of my daughter's death. And I said, so you're planning your depression already? <laughs> well, think about it. He said, what do you mean? I said, did you really love your daughter? He said, oh, yeah, more than death. I said, well, why don't you do this? Spend the whole day celebrating all the goodness she was in all the joys and all the happiness and every good day you ever had. Make it a whole day of celebration and joy because she was in your life. Or do you want to make it all about you? You see, I'm an expert at making it all about me. It could be your tragedy, but I'd take it on. (laughs) Are you okay, Ed? Oh, I could take more. And I learned that through the steps. Now, I'm not talking about normal grief. Please understand me. 
I'm not talking about normal grief, but I'm talking about the insistence on wringing every bit of pain I can out of a painful situation. Every bit of sickness, every bit of attention, every bit of wrangling I can do so the focus will be on me. I'll talk some more, and I've lost a lot of loved ones sober. Well, no, I didn't really. They just went into another room. Huh? Well, that's the way I feel. It's like, you know, this ain't, this stuff's nothing. And they went into another room. I didn't lose anybody. In fact, they're more with me today than they've ever been. That's what I've come to believe. And when I want to feel bad, it's just about being a little self-involved. There's a great story about a young man that lost his young son. And it, uh, he, he had a horrible time. Uh, he was grieving terribly because it is painful. God knows it's painful. And he, he had a horrible time forgiving uh, or, or accepting his son's death. And uh, he went to this guy and the guy said, uh, I want you to imagine something. Went to this uh, doctor and he, the doctor said, I want you to imagine something. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to see a string of young men and women walking up to the gates of St. Peter, and as they walk towards St. Peter, they light a candle. And then they walk through the gate. He said, do you see that wonderful picture? He said, yes, I do. He said, now I want you to look over on the right and see your son sitting on a bench all alone with his candle. And I want you to ask him why he's sitting there. And the man said, son, why are you sitting there? And the doctor spoke for the son and said, dad, Every time I go to get my candle lit, your candle's drowned it out. He said, it's time to let your son light the candle. It's time for the healing to begin. And I just love that story. Because I had to let a lot of people light candles. It wasn't about me anymore. It was about letting them be at peace. What a relief. But I had all this trouble with God, as I said. And they, you know, uh, Wayne talked about good others do, good orderly direction. Man, that worked for me. I could deal with that. There was a, about six months sober, you get honesty. At about eight months, you get a little tact to go with it, you know. <laughs> I was at that six-month point, and Father Tom comes in. Father Tom was sober. All preachers and ministers and priests have thin blue lips talk like this. Met a few rabbis that are like this, too. And uh, they all have thin blue lips. And Father Tom did. And he said, Ed, why don't you come back to church? <laughs> I had the honesty part of the program. I told him. I said, I don't go back to church because it's full of thieves, hypocrites, and liars. And I felt good. <laughs> Father Tom looked at me and smiled and said, Why don't you come, Ed? One more won't hurt. <laughs> I punished him. I didn't talk to him for months, you know. <laughs> but there was something that threw me. I looked around at the old-timers and Alcoholics Anonymous, and they had a look in their eye that I couldn't quite explain. And I believe the eyes are the mirror of the soul. They absolutely are. And these old-timers would talk about God, and I knew they were telling the truth. I didn't get the angle or how they were doing it, but I knew they were telling the truth. So I made almost a fatal mistake, newly sober. I started professing a faith I didn't have. I started professing a faith other than my own experience. You hear a lot of good, wonderful things in meetings, but if you don't know them and if you haven't experienced them, try to keep it to your experience is all I can tell you. 
because it'll almost, it almost cost me my life because I got to a point where I needed that faith and it was not there. I'll tell you how that happened. I was about a year sober and, uh, I just celebrated my year's birthday and the old man asked me over to the house, you know, and I don't know about you, but when my old man asked me over to the house, I'm in trouble. And I'd been hanging around A and A for a year. And you said, I got to bring new attitudes into old situations. You know, I can't let them work my program. I got to bring my program into them. So they said, suit up, show up. So I went to dinner and about halfway through dinner, dad said, boy. And I thought, oh, here it comes. And I said, yeah, pop. He said, just wanted to tell you I'm proud of you. And I need to tell you something. If you would have put a lie detector on me when I walked into that house and said, Ed, do you care what that old man thinks about you? I would have said no and it would have said true. How grateful I was that I was so wrong. How grateful I am that I was so darn wrong about so many things in my life that I absolutely knew was the truth. You see, when I came to AA, they said wonderful things had happened. Try to make a list of things you'd like to happen. That wouldn't have made the list because, you see, that's impossible because I knew that old man hated me. No, what he wanted was for his boy to do better, and I just couldn't get it. Man, I left there and it was one of the best nights of my life. And I, I went to a, a meeting and I went to, to my sister-in-law's house afterwards and I got a call from my mother who was crying and hysterical and said, Ed, come home quick. My dad went across the street to get him a quart of beer and me a bottle of pop and now they're carrying out bodies and I don't know what's going on. And I just never heard her that hysterical before. And I jumped in the car and it was one of those ice storm nights. I don't know if you ever get them down here. Uh, probably not. <laughs> well, no, you know... When you get a, a, a layer of ice over everything, do you get those from time to see? And you know. But uh, it was one of those nights where it was just solid ice everywhere. And I made it across town, and I pulled up to that bar, and there were more cops there than I'd ever seen. And it's funny, that year I was sober, those cops really shaped up. If you're new tonight, you quit swinging, they'll quit arresting. Who knew? Keep this shut and just say yes, sir, and no, sir, and thank you, and you usually go home. <laughs> Who knew? And I went up there, and it was funny because those cops had uh, respected me because back then in Alcoholics Anonymous, we didn't have a lot of the fancy-dancy stuff we have now. Uh, we had just had one people, one drunk helping another. It was kind of cool back then. Didn't have all that outside interference. It's true. Absolute truth. Killing people right and left, and people don't get it. But then we just went into court, and we, we hauled people to AA, so they saw me in court every day. So they knew I was sober, and I walked into that uh, bar that I'd spent many a night in. I'd been drinking in there since I was 11 years old. They never ID'd me. And I walked in. There was an officer in there, and uh, I sa he said, Ed, what are you doing here? And I said, my dad was in here. He said, oh, my God, Ed. And I said, what? What's going on? He said, all we know, Ed, is somebody came in and opened fire and shot everybody. And I looked down the bar, and I saw a pool of blood. Saw a pool of blood with my father's glasses all smashed up in it. And I didn't want to know. Didn't want to know, but I knew. Didn't want to, but I knew. And the officer said they took all the bodies up to the hospital, Ed. You'll have to go up there. And he was very nice and he was very kind. I went up to the hospital and I ran into an officer that hadn't forgotten the old days. And he was rude and vulgar and abrupt. I named Iverson. God bless him. And uh, 
he suggested to me that he'd identified all the bodies and I better get out of there or he'll have me arrested. And an AA miracle happened. I said, okay, and I turned around and went away because I'm a cop fighter. And a year and a half before that, they would have been looking for a new lieutenant, I don't mind telling you. But you see, hanging around, you changed my heart and changed my mind, and I didn't even know it. I, honest to God, didn't know it. I just knew my heart ached more than it had ever ached in my life that night. And I went home and I called the one guy that I would have never dreamed I called. He was a lieutenant of the narco division, Bob Garner. <laughs> And for the last five years of my life, he tried to put me behind bars. He got me in back of the squad one day and said, Ed, if I see you leaving the scene of the crime, or think I see you leaving the scene of the crime, I'm going to shoot to kill and not stop. And I said, everything's fair in love and war, chump. We had a wonderful report. That's the guy I called. You know why? He knew I was sober. And he said, Ed, what's going on? I said, Dad was in the shamrock. He said, oh, my God, Ed, hold on. And he loved me that night. I used to say he was kind to me. He loved me that night. He fed me information he wasn't supposed to feed me. He gave me thoughts and ideas that were going on at the station that nobody should have known. But he knew my heart was broken. And he knew what I used to be like. And he knew it was a flat miracle I was sober. And he fed me the information. He said, all we can come up with, Ed, is that he was... Either shot and uh, they took him with him, took him hostage, or he shot and wandered outside and we'll form a search party and we'll search for him. And, uh, I'd always hoped you wouldn't know that feeling. And then September 11th happened. That needless act of homicide that's so hard to understand. And you're just empty and hollow and horrified all at once. And you just walk around in a daze and you're looking under parked cars for your dad and in the street corners and you uh, you don't want it, but you got to look because he might be there. And the only thing I could remember that night was the serenity prayer, and I could only remember it one word at a time. Thanks, God. And that's the only thing I had going. And the next morning, I walked up to the, I walked back to the house, and Mom said, Ed, there's a phone call for you. And I got on the phone. It was an officer from the police, uh, the policeman from the night before from the hospital. And he said, well, Ed, come on up. Anybody could have made a mistake. We need you to identify your old man. And I said, okay, and I walked up there, and I walked into that morgue, and I saw my father laying there with that bullet hole in his face, and I reached for that faith I'd been professing, and I come up with a handful of nothing, because it wasn't mine. It was nice thoughts, but it was nothing of mine. And I don't know that I've ever felt more alone or more sad than I felt that moment. And I walked out the door, and guess who was there? member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what they did? They looked at me and just gave me a little wink, give me a thumbs up. And Wayne wonders how I show up when his daughter's sick. It's because I was taught by the very best. And everywhere I went, there were people from AA everywhere. The police station, the funeral home. It was still Iowa's most heinous crime, and they... You know, it was just thousands of people come to the funeral, and it was just amazing. And I was just torn. I I, I couldn't get it because I was trying to pray to this God, and I thought I had something going. But then this whole idea, this God, and this you know, taking people to heaven and shoots people in the face and hits them with trucks, and I, man, went to the funeral, and there was a guy named Father Grub there, did the funeral, and he gave me one of the keys to the kingdom. About halfway through the funeral, he said, you know, a lot of people would say Clifford's death is God's will. 
And he said, I don't believe that. And I sat right up in the pew. He said, I believe God created human beings and gave them a free will. Some of those people chose to do this act. And now it's God's will. Man. You mean the reason Linda died is there was human error? Yeah. Do you mean all those people died September 11th because somebody had real evil thoughts and drove planes into buildings and God weeped louder than we could imagine? Yeah. You mean all the loved ones I'm dying of that are dying of cancer, God's not taking them, but we're polluting everything we touch and we want to blame it on everybody else? Yeah. I don't know about you, but in my heart and mind, if it isn't good, it isn't God. Why are the two children starving on all over the country, including this one, all over the world, including this country? Real simple. We don't feed them. More than enough food. Don't blame God anymore. What a freedom that was. You know, early on, I kind of hoped I could believe in a God that was kind and loving and forgiving. On one of the worst days of my life, I got that gift. You see, that's the way my God works. The most heinous, worst things in my life, he'll give me gifts beyond measure if I just pay attention and stay around long enough to use them. Shortly after that, uh, they caught the guys that did it, and they called me in. The guy was sitting there, and one of the guys uh, was sitting there, and he had his attitude and his little do and acting tough. I thought, you know, you give me five minutes with him. We don't need a trial. I'll take care of that punk now. And I was dead serious. I wasn't talking about slapping him around a bit. I would have took him out. And A&A &A ruined me. <laughs> they told me I had to go into court and behave myself. That I might be the only example of AA they, anybody ever sees, and you got to put on your suit. And I had a great fitting suit. <laughs> and I went into court, and I did my testimony. Yeah, that's him. And yeah, that's my dad. And I left. Shortly after that, uh, they were all convicted and sent to prison. And I thought I was done with it. I really did. And uh, shortly thereafter, God talked to me. Now, you got to be careful when God talks to you. I, got, I believe God does talk to you, but sponsors are wonderful filters for when God calls. <laughs> I remember one time I went up to my sponsor and I said, Sponsor, I got this message from God. And he said, What is it, Ed? And I told him, and he said, You know, this message from God looks strangely like your handwriting, Ed. <laughs> So that's wonderful. But I also believe with all sincerity, 86, 87, 88 tells me I'm going to be inspired if I take time to pray and make that connection. I absolutely believe that and live that today. I don't live in insanity anymore because I don't have to. And that's very important. But God talked to me and he said something very simple. I was in Galesburg, Illinois. He said, Ed, go out to California. Get into show business. <laughs> Made sense to me, right, Wayne? <laughs> Went to Anaheim, California, where all stars get their start. I got a job at Disneyland. I was goofy. <laughs> Little did they know how well I fit the role at that point. But, you know, I never actually started that job. What happened? No, what happened was I went up to a meeting in West L.A., and it was on a Tuesday night. 
And there was an enthusiasm in there. There was a spirit uh, Tuesday night in West L.A., and it was just a magnet. It was living, breathing people in meetings, talking about life, talking about living, talking about going forward instead of looking back. And I'm not putting down any AA I'd been around, but I'm used to being in a meeting and flipping Fred a chip once a year. There you go, Fred. (laughs) Happy birthday now. That's pretty much it. (laughs) This group was doing things. They played softball. They played volleyball. They moved one another. They did everything. If anybody needed anything, we did it for them. It was called the fellowship of men and women who shared everything they had to help one another in living color. And I loved it. I went up there the next week and there was some guy running around. I hadn't had a sponsor in two and a half years. I was a little too spiritually fit for that, I thought. <laughs> and uh, there was this guy running around the meeting. I said, excuse me, would you, would you be my sponsor? He said, no. I kind of knew the A&A rule. You know, if somebody asked you to be a sponsor, you got to be the sponsor. Yeah. And he said, no. And I said, why not? He said, anybody I sponsor has to look up to me. <laughs> I thought, oh, good, tall jokes. That's, that's going to make me feel good. Yeah. <laughs> and a few minutes later, he came up and he said, if you agree to do a few things, I'll be your sponsor. My name's Clancy. <laughs> and I am forever grateful I didn't hear the crap that goes on around about him, whether it be true or not, for one simple reason. I would have believed you and I would have died because I respected you. And you would have killed me by your gossip and your rumors. I make it my utlevel best not to put down any group or individual in AA. I may not like them at all, but they may be the guiding light that you need. And who do I think I am to take their inventory? Might be just what you need. You know, I, I get to travel a lot, and I hear people say, I've never been to a bad AA meeting. And I always say, you need to double up on your meetings, what you need to do. <laughs> You're not getting it near enough. <laughs> and the reality of that is, you know, uh, people do things differently than I understand it. And today I celebrate it rather than get aggravated about it because those rooms are full. And hopefully they'll get to what I understand to be Alcoholics Anonymous someday. And all I can do to do that is be the example that I am. Hold me accountable. You see me misbehaving anywhere. You got my permission. Call me on it. I learned a long time ago being sober is more than going to a meeting for an hour and simulating recovery. It's how you treat the dog on a bad day. It's how kind and courteous you are to that significant other even when you don't feel like it. It's how you're treating that driver in front of you, justified or unjustified. Wayne reminded me of something. I just, I was down in Louisville a couple of years ago. And the guy said, hi, Ed, how are you? And I said, fine, how are you? He said, do you remember me? And I said, no, I really don't. Because I didn't. He said, we used to go to meetings together in Los Angeles. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, I remember the last time you and I were in a meeting together. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, you knocked the guy out with one punch. (laughs) God, I didn't want that information. You know, you don't understand. I'm next to God now. (laughs) 
But I remember that night, and I'm sharing it. Number one, you don't do that in an AA meeting. That's totally unacceptable behavior. No, no, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. That's what bothered me is I broke one of the rules that uh, I'd been taught. I mean, as that guy was flying over the fourth row, I was thinking, how am I going to explain this to Clancy? (laughs) Of course, I didn't realize I didn't have to. (laughs) He understood completely. But uh, (laughs) let me tell you how that occurred. I'm sitting in a Thursday night meeting. It was down in Culver City at that time, and it was 30 minutes of participation, coffee break, and main speaker. We're doing the participation part, and uh, uh, a guy was sitting in front of me talking, a guy named Barry O., cameraman. And uh, uh, I tapped him on the show. I said, excuse me, I can't hear the participants. He went, oh, okay. Well, at the coffee break, he turns around and he said, don't you ever touch me again. And I said, oh, uh, I'm sorry if you misunderstood. I just couldn't understand. And little Alice come running up said, Big Ed, sit down. Big Ed, I said, honey, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. I'm just explaining to the guy. So I turned around and explained some more. And I, honest God, thought I was doing just fine. And then Barry said, don't you ever touch me again. Right here. Next thing I know, he's going over chairs. And I think, you know, I've misjudged this situation. I really felt bad about it. I went over and I brushed him off and talked to him. I sponsored him for the next five years. He said, he said no sponsor had ever been able to get his attention. So I... But I don't say that with pride. What I, you know, that whole thing, and it's, it's funny now, yet it's sad because I was, I was what, uh, 13 years sober, but I never dealt with the anger that I had, the anger that I had. It was killing me, stark raven sober, and I didn't even know it. If you ask me, I was doing fine, and I believed it. See, Alice could see it. My friend Alice, God bless her, she was saying, Big Ed, sit down. Big Ed said, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> Shortly after that, I was going out to Thousand Oaks, going out the, the freeway there, and some guy in an Audi cut me off and slammed on the brakes and flipped me off. Well, in California, you can beat up people pretty regular, and it's pretty good fun. And, uh, right, it gets crazy. And uh, he flipped me off and then told me to pull over, and I thought, cool, Okay. <laughs> He pulled over, he got out of his Audi, come running back. I unfolded out of my car, and his eyes got this big. And I grabbed him by the crotch and the shirt and threw him over his car. And then I thought, I'm going to speak something. I did, I did, I did what any good AA would do. I went around and I picked him up and I brushed him off. And his eyes are this big, and I said, you know, I'm a member of his 12-step program, and when we're wrong, we need to promptly admit it and make it. He left for some reason. Didn't let me finish. And I don't know about you, but that uh, that was extremely unacceptable to me. And I had justified it for a long time because I was around people who like to justify anger in a lot of different ways. And it ain't about them. It's about I'm responsible for my actions, not anybody else. And I really realized that I had to, as the book says, give up fighting anything or anybody or I was going to die. I remember I uh, was going to speak in Pasadena, California, and I was living on Venice Beach. 
that long before it got famous. And uh, I'm broke. I'm flat broke. And I'm thinking, I'm speaking in Pasadena, wealthy area. I may hook up, pick up a few bucks. And I caught myself doing that con. And what I did is when I realized that with God, I started fresh and new. My first honest prayer I ever said is, God, I don't know if you're there or not. I sure hope so. That was the truth. It was honest. It's all I knew. And I caught myself running that little con, and I went into that bathroom, and I said the same prayer in that bathroom I said up, as I said upstairs before I came down here tonight to supper. And I said, God, save me from my own nonsense. I used to use another descriptive word than nonsense. But I find nonsense works just fine now. And it's God, save me from my own nonsense, and let me share the miracle you've performed in my life through Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't want anything from this, people. Absolutely nothing. And I went and I talked. And after the meeting, a guy came up to me and said, this makes no sense to me. won't offer you a job. said, makes perfect sense to me. He said, have you ever been in Taiwan? I said, no. He said, have you ever been in show business management? He said, no. He said, be in my office Monday morning. Uh, I went to the office. Monday morning on Thursday, I was lifting out of LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, on China Airlines. I was going to Taipei, Taiwan. I was the new soon-to-be vice president of America on Ice. I had a cast of 63. I was going to Taipei to negotiate the ice rink and building of the rink and the costumes and flying back and forth with designer Bill Campbell to Hong Kong to build the costumes. How was your week? (laughs) Now, the only reason I share that with you is for one thing. Isn't it amazing I showed up for the interview? You had taught me to drop the bag of ones. I'm worthy today. I shared it with somebody at supper, and I don't know if they got it or not, but I'll share it again. For the first time in my life, I'm innocent most of the time. I'm not guilty anymore. What a gift. What a gift. And I could go and I could be present. And I could talk about my past as an open book. I like Wayne. I don't sugarcoat any of it. Why? Can't hurt me anymore. My past doesn't own me. God does in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And with those two owners, I'm under good ownership. And they ain't selling me out anytime. And uh, it was fun. I got off the plane over there, and I, I got off the plane, and everybody's this tall. <laughs> And I'm looking at them, and they're looking at me. And I know it's just a matter of time before they time me down. It's coming, Maddie. <laughs> and I remember I looked out, and there was a guy there with my, bad, my name badly misspelled, my chauffeur. And I got into my Mercedes limo, and they took me up to the President Hotel into my six-room suite. And I walked in and I belonged there. You know why? Because God put me there. I quit arguing. You know, I hear a lot of well-meaning people. I say, how are you doing? They say, better than I deserve. And I say to them, God's still wrong, huh? Think about it. We're no good at accepting gifts, especially just of grace. Saying thank you, simply thank you. Clancy taught me that. One time I remember I was in the group and I, I, I was broke and he come up and he slipped me five bucks. And, uh, you know, in his hand, the way he slipped it. He, Clancy always does stuff like that and always has, but you never hear that about him. And uh, I remember he took his hand away and I looked at that five bucks and I said, oh, oh, I can't take this. I can't take this. 
And Clancy, in his kind and loving way, <laughs> looked at me and said, Shut up! Why don't you just shut up? Why, does, why can't you just say thank you? Why do you got to destroy the spirit of the giver? Why does it always have to be about you? <laughs> now I just simply say thank you when someone says something. <laughs> One of the biggest grows I have because it isn't about me and I don't want to taint your spirit ever again. This weekend, a lot of people have said some wonderful things about you. And I know they're true because they shared them. And it isn't about me, but it's about how you made the person I am today. You know, I, Wayne said he's satisfied. I used the term for the first time in my life, I'm enough. I don't need anything more. Me, my God, my program, I don't need anything more. I don't need the relationship. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> We won't even go there. <laughs> well, I lied. Yeah, we will. I'm gonna... About, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we got to end pretty quick anyway. Uh, about ten years ago, well, first I left uh, America on Ice. I was with them uh, while I was in Kaohsiung. A guy said, "You know, you'd be an excellent manager for the Harlem Globetrotters." I went, "Yeah, sure." I went home and the Harlem Globetrotters called me up and then I traveled all over the world as a business manager for the Harlem Globetrotters in the year of Lemon and Curly Neal, the wonderful. And uh, that was a gift. I don't want to, I don't want to forget to share that with you. Not because it's something about me, but remember where I started laying in the middle of the street? You tell me any other explanation but an act of mercy and grace to put me as manager of the Harlem Globetrotters. There just is no other. Now I lost my place, Wayne. It's rubbing off. <laughs> Must be this spot in the floor. <laughs> oh, relationships. Thank you. I, uh, about ten years ago, I was married. I got married when I was with the Globetrotters. I met the daughter of the Turkish ambassador. She was Turkish, she was Muslim, she was beautiful, she was wealthy, and I thought, our backgrounds are a lot alike. <laughs> and we should have never been married. I don't say that to be smart. I don't say that to be rude. I say that as a matter of fact. For a lot of years, I made a lot of excuses. It was a bad mistake that we got married. And there were three children that I loved dearly, who absolutely hate every breath I take. And I'm not able to spend much time with them at all because they really hate me. Why I share that with you is not anything about me, but it's for the wonderful program of Al-Anon that can do so much healing for broken hearts and sad hearts and the anger. There's some of us out here who have loved ones that haven't experienced that gift yet. So if you've got someone in that other fellowship, celebrate it. Believe me. And, uh, about ten years ago, I was uh, at a Christian retreat, and I had a spiritual awakening. And, and, and very much like Bill said, it was a, a moment that changed my heart and my mind from that moment to this. And God said, "I want you to be a minister." And uh, I said, "Okay." And I'd never been one before, so it was kind of tough. <laughs> but in three weeks, I had my church, 
I went to the Methodist church, and if you're breathing, you're in, you know. Well, I mean, there's a terrible crisis. Not so much anymore. One of the gifts of September 11th is more people are entering the ministry and clergy. Thank you, God. That's one of those gifts that he brings out of tragedy. He didn't cause that to happen, so that would happen, but that's a gift because that happened, I believe. And uh, within three weeks, I was doing uh, services, and I was doing sermons, and I was just, uh, and then they told me, we need you to go get your BA, and we need you to go get our Masters of Divinity, and they said it was 220 hours of college credit. I didn't tell you before, but I got kicked out of school in seventh grade, and I quit paying attention a few years before that. <laughs> but I know this, when God calls me to do something, I'm not going to argue, so I went over to the university, and uh, walked in and I said, excuse me, I'd like to go to school. And they said, how many credits do you have? And I said, I have bad credits. Why? What's that? (laughs) And they laughed like you did. But it was the gift Wayne shared sometime today. I was able to look him in the eye and say, you don't seem to understand. I don't know how to go to school. I'm not sure if I'm smart enough to pass class. Will you help me? And of course they said yes. Because when you look people in the eye and you're honest with God is in our midst, I believe. And a healing begins. And I started the school. And I didn't clap and I didn't take any special classes to give me credit for what I'd done because I'd been so against education. I thought, by gosh, if I'm going to get these, I'm going to get every hour. So 220 hours later, when I got my master's and when I got my BA. Well, what does that have to do with relationships, you say? <laughs> when I got called into the ministry... I knew that I had to hold myself to a standard higher than I'd ever held before. Now, I believe this. This is not put on anybody else. I believe this for me. Being a circuit speaker in AA, I need to be above reproach to the best of my ability. And I had a real problem for a lot of years. I liked the ladies. But when I got into the ministry, I knew I had to raise that up too, and that had to change. So I said, God... If you want anybody in my life, you got to hit me with two by four. Because I ain't going there. I'm not going to risk my reputation in AA. I'm not going to risk my reputation as a pastor. See if I can get lucky. Because I, I, I don't like luck anymore. I like blessings. And I'm speaking out in Oklahoma. And this gorgeous woman walks up to me. And I'd seen her for about two years. Well, but I'm, I mean, ta- seeing her there, I'm not seeing her. But she was beautiful. You couldn't help but miss her. I mean, not miss her. And she came up to me after I talked, and she said, Ed, I want to talk to you. Can I? I said, sure. She said, I'm just crazy about you. I hope that doesn't offend you. And I said, no, it doesn't at all. <laughs> Once she turned around, I went, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. <laughs> But I tried to the best of my ability to practice the life of celibacy, and I did so in that case, and we talked, and we spent a lot of time talking, and uh, we spent about four weeks talking, and then it started getting crazy. <laughs> and if she was going to be happy, I needed to do this, and if she was going to be happy, I needed to do that. And you know what I did this lovely woman? I called up and I said, you know, honey, I'm sorry, I don't do crazy anymore. You need to work with your sponsor, you need to do all that, you do that. Uh, but I don't do crazy anymore. And I left her alone. 
How healthy, you know? How healthy. It's too Oh, I need her. <laughs> but that's so healthy, you know? And I learned that here. I learned that here. I learned that if I want to change, you change. I remember walking up to Clancy and I said, Clancy, how do you be a gentleman? Man, that's a tough question. I wanted to ask that to people for years. I said, how do you be a gentleman? He said, you act like one, Ed. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> how do you change the way you live? By doing it. You want a better relationship with God? Then act like it. You want to be closer to God in these steps? Then work them. It's not a big mystery. You know, Dr. Bob's last talk I just love. It's been ringing through my head. I spoke at Akron last year, and it was wonderful. And uh, uh, I've just it's just been a moving, wonderful year, and a lot of things around Dr. Bob and his family. And in his last talk, to paraphrase it, he said, let's not louse this thing up with Freudian complexities. He said, let's keep it simple. Let's not louse this up with Freudian complexities. But then the second line is equally important to me. He said, what may be of interest to the scientific mind has little or nothing to do with our actual AA work. You know, we've forgotten that. AA is about me sharing my heart with you. One drunk talking to another. Cliff and I walking into a meeting terrified, but knowing if we walk in together, we'll walk out. So we got to remember that. We've gotten too far away, in my opinion, from what Alcoholics Anonymous is. It isn't a social club. It's a place where you can't get people to make a 12-step call, or worse yet, people who don't know what a 12-step call is. You know, it's more than verifying insurance. <laughs> we better get to know that because things are closing down right and left, and we're going to have a call and a strain on this fellowship, I believe, like we haven't had in years. We need to get back to Alcoholics Anonymous. At least that's what I think. I, uh, I, uh, uh, was out in California and made a few decisions based on self that cost me everything I owned. <laughs> Matt was there during that time. We were talking about that. Had a beautiful apartment in Burbank. We were wheeling and dealing. Matt and I were living together. <laughs> One day I said, Matt, I'm out of here, bud. Going to Iway. <laughs> and I said, take the stuff, sell it, do whatever you want to do. I, I got to go. And I left Iowa and I come back to, uh, left for Iowa and I came back in 88 and, uh, it was an amazing time because what it did was it allowed me to start over. You know, the greatest gift I feel we've gotten, Alcoholics Anonymous or an Al-Anon or any of the, really any of the 12-step programs, is any time we want, we can start fresh. You don't have to drink to start fresh. This whole idea that you're, you're owed a relapse is crap. You don't have to drink ever again if you don't want to. This is living proof that you can do that. And that's what I want. You know, I was preaching about three years ago, and I was preaching on forgiveness, oddly enough. And I got about halfway through my sermon, and I realized I hadn't forgiven the guys who killed my father. That's not quite true. I'd forgiven them, but I hadn't told them. And that's just half an amend. I believe a little different than Wayne does on 8 and 9. I have come to believe that 8 and 9 has absolutely nothing to do with me. It has to do with healing the damage I did. It isn't about me. It's about making right the damage I did. And uh, I'm halfway through this sermon on forgiveness, and I catch that, and I stop right in the middle of it. And I told my congregation, I said, you know, I need to tell you something. I was preaching on the verse, uh, don't bring, uh, you know, if you got any problems with your brothers, don't come to this altar. 
take care of them first, then come here. And I realized I hadn't cleared that up. So I made a covenant with them right there that I'd seek out the guys that killed my father and uh, let them know that they were forgiven. As God would have it, two and a half weeks later, uh, one of the guy's sentence was overturned. I didn't even know he was trying for an appeal, you know, and it got overturned. And I'll tell you how well Alcoholics Anonymous work. I could not remember their names. I know that's hard to believe. The people that murdered my father, I can't, could not remember their names. Because his name is Sherman, now I'll leave his last name out of it, uh, but I, was, I kept saying Sherman Williams, the paint. <laughs> but I couldn't remember. And the press came to me, because in my community, I'm pleased to tell you, because of the way you've taught me to behave and live, that I'm well respected and I'm loved. And the press came to me and said, Reverend Ed, what do you think? And I said, you know, it's time to heal. It's time to forgive. It's time to, time to start fresh. And they said, well, he went in there when he was 17. He doesn't know how to work. It's maximum security prison for 27 and a half years. What's he going to do? How's he going to support himself? And I said, he can come live with me if he wants. And people were taken back by that. And I'm not sure why. Cliff and Pat let me into their house. I knew what I was capable of. Nothing that that boy did. You let me into your homes. How dare I? How dare I not let him into mine? And that story literally went around the world. Oprah called me. 48 Hours called me. AP stories. Everybody's called. How could you do that? How could you do that? How could you do that? And you know, you just couldn't say, well, say it's called step eight and nine. And if you, <laughs> if you really work them, Oprah. <laughs> but it was amazing. And uh, as God would have it, two and a half weeks later, I was walking down a prison, prison hallway and a, uh, I saw a guy I hadn't seen in 27 and a half years. Last time I saw him, I was in a courtroom, and I thought, you give me five minutes with him, we don't need a trial. And that uh, cell door opened, he looked at me, and he didn't know what to expect. And I looked him right in the eye, and I put out my hand, and I said, Sherman, my name's Reverend Ed Mutum, and I'm here to tell you that God loves you, and I love you. And God forgives you, and I forgive you. And if there's anything I can ever do to make your life better, please allow me to do that. And I believe he looked in this old-timer's eyes and he knew I wasn't lying. He couldn't quite figure it out, but he knew I was telling the truth. And the healing began. A couple weeks went by and they decided to retry Sherman. State of Iowa, if you're caught in an act of a felony with someone, you're guilty. Life imprisonment. And I went down to the county attorney who knows and trusts me and respects me. And I asked him to give my friend a break. And he said, Ed, the guy's conning you. And I said, he don't even know I'm here. I'm asking you to give my friend a break. Let him plead to second-degree murder. Let him come home. And he listened to me. And it took us two years to get him home. And the state of Iowa gave me the privilege to go up to the jail. In fact, they'd only release him to my custody. And I picked him up. And I got to take him out and I got to buy him his clothes and figure out what size he was because he'd only wore a prison issue for the last 30 years then. Got to give him a key to an apartment so he could open his own door. I remember we went out of a restaurant right after he was released and I said, now when we get in here, the waitress is going to ask you a bunch of questions. She isn't trying to hassle you. She's just trying to get information. Like, how do you like your eggs over easy toast? Or what's out? And, you know, he's used to. And... Uh, so I said, don't, they're not trying to hassle you. They're just doing, 
And we walked out of that restaurant, and he said, Reverend Mutum, can we just stop for a minute? And I said, sure, Sherman. What? He said, I just want to look at that pond for a minute. It's been 30 years since he'd been able to look at a pond. It's been 30 years since he could open his own door without fear of being shot. And we think we got it tough because we're alcoholics. How about being a stupid punk kid afraid to say no to a bunch of ruffians and spend 30 years paying back for it? That's hell on He goofed up. He went back to prison. Last March, they called me up and he got out again. He said, I don't know if you want to talk to me. I said, sure, I want to talk to you. And he came back home and he started again. And right now, he don't like me much. It's funny how things change. So I usually don't ask people to do anything, but I'm going to ask that you pray for my friend Sherman. 30 years in maximum security prisons is beyond my imagination. He's got more demons in his head than I can imagine, and I've had a lot of them. But he's a good man. I know that in my heart. I've seen it in him. And he's lost right now. So if you get an extra minute, say a prayer for Sherman and all the people like him that aren't in rooms like we have that we can talk to one another, we can heal. Two years ago, I was I was with the Methodist Church for eight years, and they had always okayed me to go out talking once a month, on a Sunday, uh, one Sunday a month to go talk. And we got in a new bishop, and the bishop said, uh, Ed, uh, if you want to continue doing that, you're going to have to leave the Methodist Church. Well, my decision's obvious. Here I am. <laughs> but uh, it was not easy decision. It was in one sense. I knew that I wouldn't stop giving back what you've given me. But I was at a church, 1,200 people. And it was full of 299. So it was about three people who didn't like me. The rest loved me. And that's who I remember. They had a roast for me at the church when I left. And 450 people showed up. And one spokesman got up and said, we don't want to say anything bad at all about Pastor Ed. What we want to do is tell him that we love him. And we're grateful for the time he's given us. And we understand what he's got to do and that we'll be praying for him. And you'll always be in our prayers. Thanks for being you. Priceless. Priceless. I wouldn't trade anything for that. Nothing you could give me could take that. You know, we're in a day and a time when a lot of things aren't too sure, but I'm sure of a couple things. Each day I want to get closer to God. I asked Chuck C. years ago, how do you pray? And he said, you're every thought's a prayer, Ed. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> Did a little edit of what I'd been thinking and knew I wasn't in too good a shape. But I simply asked myself this, well, if it's crap, why am I thinking? I decided to change my mind. And I try to make my every thought a prayer. And I'm closer to it than I've ever been. And i still got a long way to go, but I like what's happening. About two years ago, I was watching a show that I like to watch, Actor Studio. And this actor was on there, and I can't remember his name right now, but uh, he was on there. And at the end of the show, uh, the interviewer always says, if there is God, if there is a heaven... When you die, what would you hope God would say to you when you approach those pearly gates? And he thought for a minute, and he looked up at the interviewer, and he said, thank you. Best sermon I've ever heard. 
What if we lived our life so when we died, God said, thank you. See, all my life I was seeing what God could do for me. I think I want to do my life so if I get a chance to go to those gates, God looks at me and says, thanks, Ed. Job well done. Day at a time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.